This is B-Side. I'm Andrea Seabrook. And yes, I'm cutting things up here. It's kind of a cheap metaphor, actually. I mean, the point is that um, for your listening enjoyment, we, the B-Side crew, have gone back and found some of our favorite shows by some of our favorite B-Side producers. And we have cut out those pieces from their original shows and pasted them into this new show. Now, you'd think this would just be like one of those sad sitcoms, right? Where somebody walks onto the, you know, plywood set and says, Remember that time, Jim, when we were throwing spitballs at each other? And then there's like a do-do-do-do-do-do-do, right? And it goes to that episode. But actually, I found when I started to go back through and listen to some of this, and when our producers did some of our archival work, which you can find at bsideradio.org, that our best pieces always seem to have to do with how we define ourselves, how we human beings, this strange animal that we are with this weird head on our shoulders, make our way in this new world and find the place we're supposed to be in it. And of course, one of the most important ways that we do this is with our sense of humor. I mean, starting out with sitting around at the dinner table when you're a little kid, you start by hearing your dad's bad jokes, right? And it starts defining who you are. Or at least that's what B-side contributor Dave Johns found. So a horse walks into a bar, right? Bartender says, hey, mister, why the long face? I know, you've heard that one before. But I think it's funny. Horses do have long faces. And what was that horse doing in a bar in the first place? Okay, but seriously, have you heard the one about the guy who goes to the doctor complaining about silent gas? And the doctor said, well, tell me about it. Uh, Does this happen often? Well, he says it happens uh, frequently. He said, uh, well, how frequently? Well, like on on the way over here this morning, coming to the doctor's, your office, I was riding the bus. I had silent gas uh, a couple of times. You know this one? It's one of my dad's favorites. My dad has a lot of favorites. And uh, then once I got here, I had silent gas coming up on the elevator and uh, out in the waiting room uh, once or twice. And, uh, you know, I don't know what, what the story is on that or what to be done about it. Truth is, nothing can be done about it. You're trapped inside one of my dad's jokes, a sort of cul-de-sac in the space-time continuum. There's only one way out. That's the punchline. And it'll come eventually. You just have to wait, for better or worse. And uh, the doctor said, well, uh, the first thing we're going to do is uh, get your hearing checked. My dad learned most of his jokes from a guy named Scotty he knew from work. It was the early 70s, and they were both computer programmers working in air-conditioned rooms packed with mainframes that ran on vacuum tubes. Very often, somebody would say, hey, Scotty, you heard any good new jokes? You know, and, and he always would. And uh, at first, I just enjoyed them. But then later on, I uh, realized that, uh, you know, I, I'm not one to remember jokes. So I decided that I would uh, make a few notes. It was the birth of my dad's joke journal, 
a black composition notebook where he'd keep track of jokes or stories he wanted to remember. Of course, this had an effect on his family, his captive audience around the dinner table. One joke in particular gained a certain notoriety, the meep joke. I mean, to me, it just seems, it strikes me as the funniest of the, the joke that I know, but I found that it generally falls flat on other ears, and uh, that's about these two fellows over in uh, England who are digging a ditch, and uh, this cat wanders by and uh, walks on the uh, side of the ditch there and rubs up against one of the ditch diggers, and uh, he pets him a little bit, and uh, the cat says, meep, and uh, he pets him again, and the cat says, meep, and uh, the ditch digger says to his buddy, he says, did you hear what that cat said, meep? I've never known a cat that, that said anything but meow. And you're like, okay, seems funny. A cat that says meep, weird, you know, could be funny. Uh, you, want, you wonder where it's going. And, and there you are. You're trapped inside the joke in suspended animation. And all you can do is wait for deliverance. And it was about time for a break anyway. So they, they knocked off and they went into the pub across the way. And uh, when I'm happened to think uh, the barmaid might have uh, a dictionary. Now, if you're like me, here's where you start to get nervous. Because there's nothing funny about dictionaries. At least not since second grade when you first checked out what Webster's has to say about the word fart. But that's a whole different thing. What I'm saying is, when a dictionary appears in a joke, it's a red flag. And, and sure enough, a dictionary was produced, and uh, he was going to look up uh, meep. And the other fellow said, no, it's not going to be in there. So he looked up there, and he, how do you spell it? Well, M-E-E-P, I guess. And he said, here it is. What does it say? It says, see meow. I remember one time after telling a friend one of my dad's jokes over dinner, he was like, you owe me five minutes of my life, which kind of pissed me off. It's one thing for me to make fun of my dad's jokes, but it's a whole nother thing coming from somebody else. I mean, I'm quite sure that fathers have been subjecting their children to bad jokes since the dawn of time. My dad is simply carrying on that grand tradition. Which reminds me of another, this is a Scotty joke. This is about... <clears throat> Billy Joe Smith from Beaumont, Texas. Have I told you this one before? As I've gotten older, I've actually come to really admire my dad's skill in the art form. Because as a storyteller, he has a wonderful dramatic touch. I mean, sure, sometimes the punchline leaves a little bit to be desired. But the narrative, he, he really nails it. Which you might say makes it all the more insidious when the joke turns out to be a lemon. But maybe that's really not the most important point. Another one would be... This fellow's up at uh, the Pearly Gates, and he's checking in with St. Peter. And Saint Peter in a way, my dad's jokes invert the reigning paradigm in the narrative joke. In the normal social contract with the joke teller, the listener agrees to sit through the narrative with the expectation that the punchline will be worth the wait. My dad's jokes don't work that way. They're revolutionary. They demand a new way of listening. As an audience member, you've got to learn to bask in the story as it unfolds. It's about the journey and not the destination. Another one was the, uh, <clears throat> uh, the circus train that got derailed somewhere down in Tennessee. All the animals got loose. 
When I was really little, sometimes after Little League games, my dad would take my brother and me for a ride in the car. We'd ask him where we were going, and he'd say we were just following his nose. You know, his nose, like the thing that's sticking out of the front of his head. But where was his nose taking us, we'd ask him. Only the nose knows, he'd say. And that, yeah, pretty much drove us crazy. Oh, now here's one. This is <coughs> Frank Perdue was, you know, the, the chicken man, and he was quite influential, and uh, he managed to get an, an audience with the Pope one day. And so he would go I think the, maybe that's, that's kind of the big trick. Once you get to be the dad, it's kind of your show, you know? And your kids, they're coming along for the ride. And sometimes it might make them crazy because they don't know where they're going and they don't really have any say in the matter. But as it turns out, it's kind of more fun that way. Put it to good use. <laughs> That's a good joke. That's a good one. That was a Scotty joke. That's Frank Perdue. Mm-hmm. When is dinner going to be ready? <laughs> this is B-Side. I'm Andrea Seabrook. And back here on our cut-and-paste marathon this time on B-Side, we're going to talk about a guy who has defined his life in a way that you may not have thought possible. He's the owner of a business called exclusive buttons in El Cerrito, California, and he is the button man. B-side producer Lisa Mudd brings us this story. Could I tell you how why I got into buttons? Well, what happened to me is I went into 14 different things until I found buttons, and I wanted to do something in life that I like, and I'm still doing it. I've been selling buttons for, for 50 years. I used to be a, a wholesaler. I used to sell buttons on on cards and, and up to five and dimes and variety stores as a rock jobber. Five and dimes are gone. Uh, and I said, now what am I going to do with all these buttons? So I started a store. And uh, now that now the store has become so popular, I made the who's who of important people in California. 10 years ago and uh, they called me on the phone and and they said they were doing it. I said, why are you doing this? They said, because you're the only button store like this in the whole world. I'm the only button store like this in the whole world. some of the buttons and they're so different and they're beautiful and they come in several sizes and um, and I think I got some here Wait a minute. I don't know here, here it is this is what I'm trying to tell you the women go crazy over this one they go crazy over this one the real crystal one they, they just they just love that one yeah and then they they love these over here these were made in 1910. 
They just go crazy over over the stuff that you can't buy anymore. And, and I'm the only one that sells them. And, uh, and, and then I, I like buttons because um, buttons, buttons enhance the garment. I have buttons on original cards from 1900s to 1940s. Buttons they used to sell for 10, 15 cents, and 25 cents. And, and people come in the store from all over the world because I have something you can't buy. And when they leave, a lot of them, they say, whatever you do, don't, don't retire. He says, because we need you. <laughs> and that's why I'm still here. When people come in and they give me the right change, I say, this is right on the button. <laughs> I love that button man. He just, there's just something about him that makes me happy, like, like finding that the road to defining yourself is not necessarily what you thought it would be. I mean, I can't imagine that he thought he would be the button man when he grew up. But you know, that's what he is, and it's like this perfect, beautiful thing. He's doing exactly what he should do. And it gives us a lesson that the twists and turns of the path of figuring out who you are are just impossible to predict and fascinating to hear about. Listen to this story by B-Sides Renee Gutel. She grew up in a Pentecostal Christian household, and her family believed in faith healing. And this is a story of how she lost her faith. So it's 1993, and I'm 15 years old, and I'm a very, very, very devout Christian. And not just sort of, you know, mainstream, average American Christianity, but specifically, um, my family and I belong to the Assemblies of God Church. At a very early age, three or four, I had invited Jesus into my life, specifically to live in my heart. Um, My father led me through what we call the sinner's prayer, like, Dear Heavenly Father... I know that I'm a sinner and that I'm powerless to choose between between wrong and right, but I would like to invite your son Jesus Christ into my heart and, uh, and follow your path. In Jesus' name, amen. And that meant that I was a born-again Christian. So my, my life is basically happy except for one pretty big detail, which is that I have really, really bad scoliosis. If you were to look at an x-ray of my back, it looks like an S. And if it gets worse in the most extreme cases, it can leave people kind of deformed and hunched over. And um, a lot of times the way that they treat extreme cases of scoliosis is with um, spinal fusion. And I had an orthopedic surgeon and he wanted to avoid putting me through this surgery of spinal fusion because it's very painful. 
And so he put me in a, um, a fiberglass back brace. And I, I brought it with me, actually. And it's a big monstrosity. It's, um, it's, 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 it's huge. I wore this 23 hours a day. It was not fun. And I would go to my um, Christian youth groups on Wednesday night, and when they would ask for prayer requests, I would raise my hand and I would ask for, you know, for the strength to continue to, to wear this thing. The summer after my freshman year in high school, I um, went away to visit relatives that I had in Oklahoma City. One of the probably first things they noticed about me is that I wore this big, constricting, clunky, icky, grody back brace. And um, they took me to church. And um, after church, I remember one Sunday, they, they introduced me to um, some friends of theirs, a couple. This couple told me that they had a gift from God and that this gift of God was the ability to heal people and that they knew when somebody was um, in need of healing because they could see kind of like an aura around people, like a spiritual aura. And they told me that looking at my spiritual aura, they could see that it wasn't well and that it needed healing. One of the things this couple tells me is that there's more to my sickness than just my scoliosis. Um, And they bring up the fact that my mother is a lesbian. My parents divorced when I was very little. Um, But it's true, you know, she had a partner at that time who was a woman. And um, they tell me that um, some sins, like homosexuality, are so abominable that God doesn't just punish the sinner, but he can punish um, the kids of the sinner and the kids' kids of the sinner. So the the gist of it is that I have scoliosis because um, my mother's a dyke. So the next Sunday, this couple comes over to my aunt and uncle's house, and um, I agree to um, let them heal me. And so everybody gathers around, you know, this couple, my aunt, my uncle, my cousins. um, Everybody puts their hands on me. They have um, anointing oil, and they anoint me with oil and pray, specifically praying to cast demons out of my back and, and to let me have a straight back. There was a part of my back, my lower back, that wearing the back brace caused me to have a uh, black and blue mark on my lower back. And I feel this tingling and this heat in in my lower back where this back brace is. I take off the back brace at at some point. I I don't remember if I took off the back brace during the healing or afterwards, but I, I, I remember taking it off and looking down at my back and this black and blue mark was gone. And I remember just being blown away. And, and, and thinking, you know, wow, God loves me. I mean, I, I believed at that moment that I was already healed. I believed that my spine was straight, even though I, I continued to wear my back brace every day. But I, I believed that God had already healed me. And that when I went home and went to my doctor again for my checkup, he would um, x-ray me as he always did, put the x-ray on the x-ray machine, see a straight spine, and look at me and say, Renee, I have no idea what happened. It's a miracle. And I would be able to say, you're right, it's a miracle. And I went to my orthopedic surgeon for my um, 
my checkup, which happened twice a year. And I was x-rayed and he came in and he put the x-rays up on, up on the white light and I could see, you know, clear as day that my spine was still crooked in the exact same way. 23 degrees off at the top, 28 degrees off at the bottom. I mean, he, he didn't know what my expectations were. So he just sort of went through the checkup like it was, you know, very ordinary. Oh, come back in six months, looking good. You know, keep it up. Keep wearing your back brace 23 hours a day. And I, I mean, I was just devastated. I remember kind of stumbling out in a daze from the doctor's office and going and sitting in the waiting room. I think I was waiting to be picked up and I just bawled. I cried and cried and cried and cried. I mean, I had gone through this elaborate emotional healing ceremony and then at the end of the day just to be told okay well continue wearing this this uh, back brace I I was horrified I, I mean I was disappointed by my family but I was also disappointed by God because I, I mean I believe that I, I believe that I had been having this kind of intimate conversation and relationship with God and it was like he skipped out I would say within Within six months of this experience, if somebody would have said, hey, Renee, are, are you a born-again Christian? I would have said no. I mean, interestingly, though, looking back on it now, um, 10 years later, you know, my, my back never got worse. I continued to wear my back brace 23 hours a day until I was 18, and uh, I never had to have surgery. So, so I guess the big question is, was I healed? Because... I mean, this couple in Oklahoma City might look at me today and say, well, you're fine. You know, God did heal you. He just didn't heal you on the time frame that you were wanting to be healed on. You know, he was looking at the long term. But do I believe I was healed? No, I don't believe I was healed. We're back on the B-side. I'm Andrea Seabrook. Yes, I am cutting pieces of paper in front of a microphone, trying to illustrate the point of what we're doing today, which is playing our best stories from our best producers for you. And as I said earlier, you know, you find that there are these themes in the stories we have on the B-side about defining yourself and figuring out who you are. And it's so interesting that Rene Gutel's story was sort of about religion and who you are because Stacy Bond, another B-side producer, produced this next story that's really about religion too, except it's a kind of religion of lipstick. Listen to this. I can pinpoint my obsession with lipstick to a morning in suburban Texas when I was 10 years old. My mom has this saying, pretty is as pretty does. It doesn't mean what you think it means. What it means is, if you don't do the things that make you pretty, God will not love you. God doesn't like people who won't even try. And in Texas, you want God to love you, or at the very least, for everyone to think he does. So one Sunday morning when I was 10 years old, I had this sudden notion to walk down the aisle at church during an invitation hymn. This is a song the congregation sings after the sermon. If you walk down the aisle during the invitation, you're basically saying you want Jesus to forgive your sins. So they dunk you in some water in a baptistry, which is kind of like a giant hot tub hidden by ferns behind the pulpit. Okay, I was 10. How many sins could I really have? Obviously not as many as I do now. 
But that morning I got it into my head I should impress all the adults with what a good girl I was. So when they started the song, off I went. Okay, but here's the thing. When I agreed to accept Jesus into my heart, I started down a slippery path with my mom, a path eventually paved with Lancome, Clinique, and Mac. My mother was thrilled that I had done this. In her mind, I was now a young lady, maybe even a budding Debbie Boone. Clearly, she couldn't miss this opportunity. She would make me over into God's image. God's image of the perfectly groomed Christian young lady. My mom decided it was time I wear makeup. Each morning before school, I'd stand on the olive and gold linoleum in our kitchen. I would close my eyes and turn my face upward, and my mother would whisk a cloud of powdery peach covergirl blush across my cheeks. Then she'd dab a little Vaseline on my eyelids and eyelashes for shine. Nothing too showy, at least not until I was a little older. On my own, I was allowed to apply the sheer Avon lip gloss that came in a plastic fried egg. But this ladylike stuff was so boring. Wearing makeup as a 10-year-old Christian in Texas was like wearing an attractive little prison. Everyone is watching you. How you look becomes way more important than what you do. It's the thing you're always aware of. Sure, I built a giant model of the Taj Mahal to scale, but I looked like crap the whole time I was working on it. Do you realize what a burden that can be? Always presentable, always ladylike. I began to lust after the thick, pink, silvery frost that Samantha Stevens wore. I examined her look on reruns of Bewitched. She was a witch, but she had to suppress her powers. Her only authorized expression of nonconformity was her mauve lipstick. It was a tiny hint at her shimmery depth. I wanted that. Many years later, I actually go in search of that shimmery, thick, magical pink. I do this by dragging my ukulele-playing friend Lloyd to a lipstick factory in New Jersey in the middle of the night. Yes, I'd become what you might call an adult, but to my mom's dismay, I'd failed to become a Christian singer. Instead, I was in Washington, D.C., staying up all hours of the night making art. One night, I'm working on an installation. It's a giant, white-tiled Christian baptistry, big enough for a person to be immersed in. Sound familiar? My genius plan is to fill the tub with melted lipstick. I've managed to convince a makeup company to give me several raw bricks of lipstick, but I keep not going to pick it up. I don't know why. Maybe the idea of having scads of lipstick around me, seeing how it's made, breathing in the waxy fish oil scent, maybe that's just too creepy. So I stand hot gluing these ceramic tiles to the baptistry the night before this huge multimedia art event is supposed to open to the public, while my friend Lloyd, whose own art is done, stands around playing the ukulele. 2,000 people are showing up tomorrow, and he's not even helping me. He launches into an upbeat little number about girls with anorexia. 
And then it dawns on me. Lloyd writes songs about women and beauty. I need him to come with me to get the lipstick. I said the joint was Within an hour, we're on the road. Lloyd drives and spends the entire way there telling me why the Rolling Stones completely kicked ass during their early days, but nobody realizes it. The Stones are like his personal, undiscovered underground band. Six hours, three beef jerky, and who knows how many peanuts later we get there. The cosmetics factory looks, I don't know, like a factory. I had imagined an Emerald City kind of thing. It's a family business, and this cheerful, young, bleachy Russian woman comes to greet us, and she takes us into a room where her husband is. They're so sweet. I've told them I need this bulk lipstick for a piece of art, but they don't seem to get that my art is kind of critical of cosmetics. They begin thanking Lloyd for driving me there, telling him how nice it is that he's come all this way to help me in the middle of the night. Yeah, this one is called Big Star Baby. I don't have a pick with me, but I'll see what Lloyd loves having fans. So he plays the uke for them as we go to this really chilly area of the factory. Flat cardboard boxes are stacked on huge industrial metal shelves. And guess what's in them? Discontinued lipstick colors. As bitter as I am about being stuck with this whole Texas nice women have to look good thing, I can't believe there are all of these three-foot-by-three-foot bricks of solid lipstick here for me to play with. I open one flat cardboard box after another. Where is the Samantha Stevens shade? While I'm looking, Lloyd decides he wants to work at the lipstick factory. He asks for an application. I open another cardboard box. What I find is not the Samantha Stevens color. It's not a tiny hint at hidden powers. It's a full-on bright fuchsia pink. Completely saturated, light-absorbing, and vivid. I have this urge to reach in all the way up to my elbows. I want to feel and squish around in the waxy denseness of this tangible, intense pink. Hey, I found it, I tell everybody. This is the color I wanted. The entire way home, Lloyd talks seriously about getting a job at the factory. I barely have time to shower and throw on some makeup before getting back to the site of the opening. When I get there, I heat up three crockpots. They aren't part of the art, but I need them to melt chunks of the lipstick bricks. Within a couple of hours, the lipstick is melted enough for me to start ladling it into the baptistry. The first visitors are starting to arrive. I can hear Lloyd playing the ukulele over by his own art installation. I'm trapped at my piece. If I want to finish it tonight, I have to keep working. It becomes like performance art. I put on a 50s apron. People stop by and chat. I ladle. It occurs to me that I'm as trapped by this lipstick as ever. But the thing is, I realize that I also love it. As much as I hate it, I love it. I love makeup. I don't wear a lot, but I do wear it everywhere. Just like my Texas mom. Lipstick. That's it for this episode of B-Side. The cutting and pasting of these fabulous stories has been put together by the fabulous and wonderful senior producer, Tamara Keith. The crew is Lissa Mudd, Mia Lobel, Erica Kelly, and, of course, Tamara Keith. Our theme music was composed by Dave Kaufman. To learn more about the B-Side and our crew, go to that website, bsideradio.org. Also, sign up for our podcast. And come listen next time for our brand-new shows. 
coming up on the B-side. Looking like she's in love with me. Licks my hand everywhere I go. I wish my baby loved me so.